Welcome to the Blockchain VC, a podcast about crypto and the digital assets ecosystem. My name is Tomer Federman, and I'm the managing partner at Federman Capital. We invest in the most promising blockchain startups across the globe. I have more than 15 years of experience in tech, and before starting the fund, I was on the product side at Facebook, where I led product strategy and global growth of some of Facebook's major ad products. Previously, I also lived in Silicon Valley for a few years, where I attended Stanford Business School. You can find me on Twitter at Tomer Federman. Before we begin, please note that this podcast is for informational purposes only. And all the opinions expressed on this show, either by guests or me, do not reflect the opinions of Federman Capital. Nothing on the Blockchain VC podcast represents an investment or financial advice. Please, do your own research. Also, if you like this episode of the Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out. Okay, let's do this. Very special episode today. Excited to welcome to the show Mark Bargava, co-founder and president of Tagomi. Mark? Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. To start, Mark, would love to learn more about your background and how you got to the crypto space. Yeah, sure. I uh, started my career as a consultant and then worked in private equity for a bit, um, but switched over and started doing tech startups and worked a little bit of Airbnb. And then most relevant to crypto and blockchain is began as a seed investor in the space. So I was investing in projects like Algorand, Blockstack, Filecoin, Zeppelin, and really in 2016 and 17, exploring the underlying protocol layers, looking for more scalable solutions. Um, and in 2017, one of the venture investors I worked with a lot, my now co-founder, Jennifer Campbell, she was over at Union Square Ventures and really pushing hard to invest in crypto funds and try to get exposure to Ethereum and uh, new assets that were being tokenized. Um, and so that's how in 2017, we realized there was a, a real need for a prime broker in the space, uh, one that was very strong in terms of technology, that had best execution, that allowed, allowed clients to do advanced algos. So really all of the tools that were in FX or equities, uh, we had these early clients in 2017 asking, what's the platform to do that in crypto? And so that's where the idea of Tagomi came from and uh, where the birth of our prime brokerage began. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that in a second and talk definitely a lot about Tagomi. Before that, curious, so your three co-founders, right? Yeah. So Jennifer is one of my co-founders. She was an investor at Union Square Ventures, also co-investing with me in many different protocols, but also pushing very hard to invest in crypto funds and get exposure to digital assets like Ethereum in 2016 and 17. And my other co-founder is Greg Tussar, who's the former global head of electronic trading at Goldman. So he was a senior partner there and worked at Goldman for 13 years. Uh, but he came in through an acquisition. So he actually uh, was CEO of an early startup, scaled it to 70 people and sold it. And after Goldman also helped lead KCG, which was acquired as well. So Greg's someone who's been in electronic trading since the beginning as a technologist and has really great experience building, selling, and uh, running pretty large trading operations. Right. And how do you know Greg? We met Greg through the, at the time, head trader at Polychain. So a guy called Chase Lockmiller, who now has a company called Crusoe Energy uh, that's raised over $70 million. Um, so Chase was the head trader at Polychain, and he used to work with Greg at a market-making fund called KCG. And so when Chase heard that Jen and I were looking 
to find people who could help run a prime brokerage and really build out the best execution technology behind it. Uh, Chase made the introduction to Greg, and we just started talking from there and realized that a lot of what exists in equities and FX is extremely useful for institutional clients or trading clients, just didn't exist in crypto, which was mainly retail exchanges. And having this shared vision of the world, Jen, Greg, and I started to go me. Now you guys spread between SF and New York? Yeah, so we have offices now in London, Chicago, um, New Jersey, uh, and San Francisco. And so we are definitely a distributed team uh, between the U.S. and Europe, uh, but it allows us to cover 24-7 coverage, and allows us to have clients in Asia and really globally. So definitely a distributed team in that sense. But many people on the team work together. So there are 25 folks over at Tagomi, and about half actually work together across Citadel, KCG, um, Getco, places like that. So it's a very experienced team that's built trading systems before many um, together. So what is Tagomi, Mark? Yeah, so Tagomi is a prime broker. So what that means is if you're a larger trader or investor or fund and you want to do a multi-million dollar trade or even in crypto, you know, several hundred thousand dollars in a trade on some of the more liquid assets, you don't necessarily want to go directly to retail exchanges um, where you can eat through the order book and move the market. You want to have the liquidity of many exchanges and a platform like Tagomi allows you to do that. We also get incoming quotes from market makers as well. And we can do much more advanced things than OTC desk where, you know, someone's taking your call or Skype. On Tagomi, we're an online platform and we can allow you to trade algos, have resting orders, trade on margin, do shorting, use leverage. So there's a lot more automation and functionality on something like Tagomi versus calling up an OTC desk. So when we started the company, we saw people having to cobble together a bunch of exchange accounts to do any sort of trade of size or calling an OTC desk that was often trading on principle, trading against the client, charging large markups, not having advanced tools. And so we asked ourselves, or many clients asked us, you know, who's the interactive brokers of the space? What's the online platform where all these things can be aggregated together and automated? And, you know, that's what we've built over the last two years. Um, and so the prime broker is how, you know, most endowments and family offices, venture funds, hedge funds, different quant traders, you know, generally really rely on their primes. Um, you haven't seen as many institutional and larger investors in the space until really 2016, 2017 in earnest. And so as they began to enter, uh, Tagomi was built out for their needs and alongside some of the really best funds in the space. So, you know, we have clients like Paradigm and Pantera, Multicoin, Bitwise, Crescent Crypto, Standard Crypto. So many of the index products and crypto funds, quant funds moving in, are all looking for this more advanced tooling to do larger orders and more sophisticated orders like algos that maybe break up an order and do it over time, for example. So all of this tooling really for the non-retail client, um, Tagomi has built out and we're excited to be trading with some of the best folks in the space. It's really cool. And how does the process actually work? Do they need to pick up the phone or can they do basically put an order online? Yeah, they can do it online. So the first step is, you know, we have uh, these corporates on board with us. We send them a link. They upload their company documents. We do rigorous KYC AML. Uh, Tagomi has the full regulatory stack. We have the bit license in New York. We have FTLs across different states. In the U.S., we're registered with FinCEN. So the first and foremost, you know, folks upload their information. We run KYC AML. Once they're approved and they're on Tagomi, then they can do everything online and all the trading is automated. We route to wherever the price is best. We split up your order. Um, so we really can help you not have as much market impact and get the best pricing. 
and of course, have integrated custody with partners like Backed and others. Um, and so you can really do all of your trading, custody, and bespoke needs in one place as a more sophisticated client. We also have you know, client support, obviously, and we have a more limited number of institutional clients. So we can also help you on Slack or on phone calls, help you think through your execution. You know, if it's a really large trade, how should you do it? What algo should you use? We can help present data. And we do it all on an agency basis, meaning we always trade aligned with our clients. We don't have a separate trading fund. We don't do market making, those sort of things. Um, so Tagomi is just one of the better places to go if you are thinking through a larger trade or really looking to put money to work in the most cost-effective way with the least market impact. And is the business model similar to OTC desks? Like, how do you monetize? Yeah, so there are a few different ways. One is we do have commissions on trades. So it's 10 basis points down to five basis points all in, um, which is more competitive than most of the retail exchanges. Um, so we do definitely do commissions on that. And then also for clients who want to lend or borrow coin or lend or borrow cash, um, you know, that's also part of the prime brokerage business where there are fees associated with that. We're really transparent about all our fees. You can see them on things like our post-trade report, you know, shows where the order was executed, at what price, you know, what was your total fee, how did you perform against the VWAP or other benchmarks. And so really just bringing all of these tools to market. Uh, essentially, you know, what we think is really special about the prime brokerage business is you can start matching up clients more and more. So clients that want to lend coin versus those that want to borrow to maybe short that coin or run a quant strategy. Clients that want to lend cash and those who want to borrow and trade on margin and, um, you know, have extra yield uh, for those clients who are lending. And of course, extra skin in the game for those who are borrowing and trading on margin. So we think putting together this high tech prime brokerage that can really become a platform for clients to do all sorts of more advanced trading is, you know, a very attractive business in equities. You have businesses like interactive brokers um, and is one increasingly in crypto as you have more and more sophisticated traders and, and funds and, and clients who care about things like best execution and doing more advanced order types. That's a really good business model, right? Because you guys are able to sidestep all the questions about, you know, how do we go beyond speculation and trading, right? Because that's what you do. You focus on that. I feel like a lot of people who are, you know, more bearish about crypto in general, right, are not sure that we will see use cases beyond speculation. I think everybody recognizes there's a lot of trading going on. There's a lot of interest from large traders and investors in the space. Definitely. I think, you know, people want to go long or want to go short or want to buy or want to sell or need help with custody, you know, all of these core infrastructure pieces. That being said, um, you know, I think that in general, Tagomi relies on the entire space growing. And so more use cases like payments. So that's why we were excited to join the Libra Association. Uh, more use cases, obviously, around smart contracts and having them be more scalable, having apps built on top of those protocols, um, a growth in DeFi. We certainly, you know, longer term know that there have to be an increased amount of use cases, but also as, you know, early investors in the space and folks following it closely, we know that there's a lot of great tech progress. It's just quite early in the evolution of the ecosystem. Right. How does the product needs differ across the entire, you know, investor and trader spectrum? wonder if you have like different products for different types of investors or traders. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, one view is more designed for venture capital investors, high net worth, family offices. 
it's cleaner and easier design and UI UX, and it has more of a portfolio view because generally these folks are more buy and hold, even though they, of course, sell at certain points and sometimes take on a little bit of margin or lend out their coin. But generally, it's a bit more of a portfolio view. So we have one product designed for them. Uh, we have a product designed for the active trader. It has all the algos, real-time data. You can see you know, streaming quotes. Um, so a lot more data on the screen, a lot more charting capabilities, and that's our active trader view. And then we have a third product, which are our APIs. So people who are doing more systematic trading, you know, they code up against our API, they get best execution that way. So we certainly have a lot of different types of clients. I think what unites them all is that they're not retail. They're doing larger trades. You know, they're generally corporations or funds, but certainly they have very different styles of investing from, you know, buy and hold to really being in and out of the market in a, you know, quantitative way, very uh, very kind of robust needs on that side. So it really does vary. Um, and we've built around the same backend, the same infrastructure. You know, we connect to 10 exchanges and four market makers, three exchanges, sorry, three custodians and two banks. So quite a lot of interconnectivity that we put together and integrate and have it so the client can onboard to just to go meet once and then get access to all these services. Um, so that backend infrastructure is the same and is what all these different clients want. Better pricing, more liquidity, custody in one place, uh, settlement and clearing built in. And so they all have the same sort of use case, but how it manifests itself is very different in terms of what screens or APIs they end up using to interact with us. Yeah, I'm actually quite surprised to hear that you have a lot of clients also that are focused on buy and hold. And I think you mentioned also venture investors. I would think it's more geared towards more active traders. Yeah, active traders interact with us more, but you know, there are definitely venture funds, family offices, and others um, who place really large bets through us. And they want the insights on, hey, I'm, I'm putting this amount of money in the market. How should I do it? What algo should I use? How do I make sure I get the best execution? How do I do it across venues? Can you also custody it for us? Um, so it's a different use case in some ways in terms of their approach to investing in the space but it's essentially the same tooling that they're asking for. Better pricing, great security, custody in one place. Um, and so the prime brokerage model can really have a lot of different types of clients. They're just united in wanting best execution and more services in one place and having sort of one portal to interact with the ecosystem. Right, makes sense. And then how much of the trading that happens to your platform is Bitcoin as opposed to you know, cryptocurrencies? Yeah, it doesn't vary that much from sort of Bitcoin as a percent of market cap. So I would say roughly 70%. Um, but many of our clients, you know, might be doing most of their orders or most of their trading in Bitcoin, but they want to go long or short or have some exposure to, you know, smaller assets as well. So, you know, we have over 25 assets on the platform. It really varies state by state. Um, we're, you know, compliant with the regulators in each state and deciding what we choose to list for clients from that state. Um, and so, you know, being connected to 10 exchanges and four market makers, we obviously have access to, you know, most of the digital assets out there, but we choose to list them based on your jurisdiction. And most clients are not BTC only. So the vast majority do, you know, many different sort of investment strategies. Um, but at the same time, you know, the vast majority of trading is BTC and almost all clients in some way um, are going long or short or have some access to it. Do you have a listing criteria for, you know, adding new cryptocurrencies? Yep, we sure do. So the largest one is, you know, the legal and regulatory on a state-by-state -state basis. So we need to make sure it's not, you know, an unregistered security. We don't want to be listing unregistered securities on the platform. So our general counsel is an attorney. He worked at the SEC. 
our CCO is an attorney who also worked at the SCC. Um, so for us, we, we do the legal and regulatory screening of different tokens and kind of decide on a state-by-state basis uh, what we list where. Um, and then in addition to that, of course, we have to have partner exchanges or market makers providing liquidity. And we screen and, and limit you know, the number of counterparties we work with there. And how do you handle custody? I think you mentioned earlier that you work with BACT. Is that the only custody provider or how are you approaching that? Yeah, we work with BACT, Coinbase, and Bitco as our three primary custody partners. Um, and so, yeah, what we do there is a pretty rigorous screening process on both the security side, but also the legal and regulatory, the insurance piece, and we choose select partners. Um, BACT, we work with quite a lot on the Bitcoin custody and then Coinbase and BitGo and many of the altcoins as well. And so clients, of course, when they're done trading, can always move the cryptocurrency to their own wallet, um, or they can keep it with us. And if they choose to keep it with us, we keep it at one of those three places. And so for many clients, they like being able to keep it with us. You know, they only have to onboard to one place. As custodians bring down pricing, we pass along those benefits to clients. You know, we can manage it, their cold wallets for them. Um, so it's certainly a benefit to Gomi. But many of our large clients are actively trading, so they don't really need cold storage. Um, or, you know, end up when they're buying, um, just transferring it to their own account. But custody is an offering that is integrated in and is available to clients should they want it. To clarify, you're focused on large institutional investors, right? Tagomi isn't available to, you know, individual investors who want to invest smaller amounts of capital. That's correct. Yeah. So we do have some individuals, but they're high net worth um, and they're doing larger investments. Uh, we don't target retail. We're for larger credit investors, for funds, for family offices, for venture capital groups, for quant traders who are, you know, doing larger amounts. Um, so, yeah, we, you know, we think if you want to go buy $10,000 worth of Bitcoin somewhere, there are plenty of great retail exchanges. We're really targeting clients who, you know, are doing at least fifty to 250000 a trade um, and are more active. Right. And then do clients have to connect their wallets? Do you do like a wallet integration or how do you handle that? Yeah, if clients want to, they can whitelist their wallet. And when they're done trading on Togomi, they can send it over to their wallet. If they want, they can keep it on Togomi and move it to our vault, which is our cold storage, which is a mix of the three custodians we work with. Got it. Makes sense. I, I want to touch on something you said earlier, Mark, the bit license uh, approval you got from New York State, mm-hmm. from the New York Department of Financial Services. Can you talk a bit about the process of getting the bit license, obviously it's pretty controversial, has been so pretty much since inception. Curious if you can talk a bit about that process and why you thought it's important to get it. Yeah, sure. So it's important to get it if you're servicing clients in New York State who are based in New York um, or operating in New York doing to their trading activity. So it's not a nice to have, it's a must have if you have New York clients. Um, and so, you know, exchanges and trading shops and others uh, need to get it. In terms of the process, you know, we obviously have a very strong KYC AML program already in place and an experienced team and good accounting and records keeping. And so for us, you know, it wasn't a, a big pain point necessarily in getting it. And we want to obviously be compliant. And, you know, we're also an audited company and we take all the right steps to have the right legal stack. I do think that one thing that could help the ecosystem quite a lot, though, is to standardize a lot of these regulatory processes. So not only did we go through that and get the the bit license with the DFS, but we have MTL licenses in states like Texas and Connecticut and Illinois and, you know, really across the country. And all of them have a different process and there are multiple processes. 
they ask different questions. Um, there are different procedures and check-ins from the regulators. And so it does end up being quite costly to maintain. And so I, I do think that, you know, to spur innovation, one thing that would be great is if it was a bit more standardized, especially here in the U.S. across states and even internationally to a degree. So we inter- interact with regulators globally. You know, we, we run in over 30 countries and are live. Um, and so we interact with regulators in each jurisdiction um, that we that we work with. And I really think that, you know, having a bit more of a standardized process in the U.S. across states and even potentially globally or across, you know, different countries that trade frequently together or have similar industry standards um, would be really beneficial to the space and make things more streamlined. Uh, but until then, you know, for each area we take on clients, we, we take a look from a legal and regulatory point of view, um, decide which licenses we have to get. And even within each country on a state by state basis, we'll be compliant. That's just really important for us because we're building this for the long run. And, you know, we're in the financial services industry and you it's not like the taxi medallion lobby or something. You know, Uber could break the law, but, you know, get away with it or my former employer, Airbnb or, you know, that's all very controversial if, you know, they're breaking laws or not. But at the end of the day, you know, a homeowners association or a taxi medallion group or whatever is just very, very different than financial services where there's huge legal teams, lots of enforcement. And crypto has been a little bit under the radar, even though we might not feel that way being in the crypto bubble. But I think as it grows, as businesses like lending become more prominent, um, it's just going to be really important that people are compliant because the governments globally do have resources here to, you know, make sure things like KYC, AML are being followed. And so we want to be mindful of that, but at the same time, really advocate for standardization and simplicity and not hampering crypto efforts, um, you know, from a regulatory point of view. That makes a ton of sense, right? I think a lot of folks in the space appreciate the importance of being compliant and working under the existing regulatory frameworks that exist right now. I mean, there's no other ways to really bring in significant new players into the space, right? No JP Morgan is going to pull capital or any other major bank or financial institution for that matter without having that regulatory clarity. And so with that in mind, Kirs, what's your view on the regulatory regime right now in the US? Are you more optimistic now than say like a year or two ago? Do you see progress on that front? Yeah, I, I do think in the last few years, regulators know a lot more about cryptocurrency than they did even in 2017. If you go and you talk to state or federal regulators, they you know are not experts on the subject, but certainly know a lot more than in 2017 and have very good questions. I honestly don't feel legal and regulatory is holding the space back in a massive way. I think it is limiting to a lot of companies, especially if you don't have as many resources. And I think it needs to be standardized and it has to be made easier for folks. That being said, when I think about the global challenges to crypto, I think you know number one and two are, are really just more around use cases and traction. So I really think that it's more about, you know, what are the apps being built on top of different protocols? Um, You know, how much traction do they have? How many people are really interacting with crypto, whether for payments, whether it's for store value, whether it's for an app? Um, And I so for me, really, it's much more about the technology, making it more scalable um, and also and also around the use cases as well. Um, and making sure that more and more people are interacting. And I think there it's just, you know, slow and steady growth. And so on the tech side, I think there's some super exciting things going on with DeFi. I think a lot of the smart contract systems are working to be more scalable. Um, Obviously, Bitcoin, every day it's alive and it's sort of 
chugging on to be a, a store of value. And people are, of course, now building on top of it, which is super exciting for payments. Um, projects like Libra are saying, hey, we can have the massive distribution through Facebook and Uber and Spotify and all these partners. So there's a lot of excitement in this space. And, you know, obviously, obviously I'm very bullish on it. And to go me as, as well as the prime brokerage platform for the space. That being said, I think what's holding kind of crypto, you know, going more mainstream or having these really large folks like JP Morgan, which you referenced, or others truly involved in meaningful ways um, is just, you know, the technology and the adoption. And I view that as something that needs to be, you know, kind of solved more so than legal and regulatory, which I think does need to be standardized and streamlined, certainly, and that will help the ecosystem. But I wouldn't put it as, you know, the largest hindrance by any means compared to some of the other areas where we just need to see continued progress. Yeah, I feel like there's mixed views on that, right? I recently had on the podcast Mans Harmon, the CEO of Hadera Hashgraph, and I think he shared a similar perspective to what you're talking about. And in fact, he was talking about how they intentionally decided to start the business in the US. They thought it's really important, both for them, I think, personally, and also for their client base. But then you see other companies, you know, Circle, for instance, comes to mind, who move certain parts of their business offshore because of some regulatory challenges. So it's going to be interesting to see how regulation progresses in the coming years. But in terms of what you're talking about, the technology and kind of the need for the technology to evolve, are you referring to the tech stack itself or for the need to, to provide basically more education for regulators so that they can learn more about the space and get more comfortable with it? For the, for the technology to succeed. Um, yeah, I, th I think the biggest thing holding it back, again, is just not regulatory or regulators. It is scalable technology. Where is the cryptocurrency payment system that hundreds of billions of people are using? You know, where is the mainstream adoption of consumer apps on top of smart network protocols where, you know, you, your information remains private for you? And of course, we're waiting on things like decentralized file storing to be um, you know, make more progress so we can have a decentralized social network. We're waiting for Ethereum and other platforms to be more scalable so we can have more mainstream apps on top of them, even though, of course, all the DeFi apps are very encouraging. Like, these are really the issues holding back the space. I don't think it's because of an MTL license in a certain state or something like that. I think there's a lot of improvement you can do on legal and regulatory, but it's way, way, way down there. When I think about this industry, what, does, what do we need to focus on? What do we need to push forward? It's certainly scalable smart contracts as well as real applications and use cases with mass adoption. And there are a lot of people working on that. And what Tagomi is doing is helping, you know, those people working on it, like a Hedera, they can now list their token on Tagomi. They can have access to these, you know, new investor base, uh, larger capital market access. And so that's kind of how we're contributing. But the holdup is less like legal and regulatory. Um, you know, you don't see traction of these mainstream apps in places like Singapore, for example, which has a much more generous legal and regulatory view. So it's really more the technology. It's more the use case adoption. Those are the things that are holding the industry back the most. Legal and regulatory, I think, certainly is a friction. And it's one that there are a lot of ways to improve it. And we are trying to contribute to that wherever we can. But it's really focusing in on the actual underlying technology being more scalable and the number of use cases and the number of participants growing. Those are the two things I'm most focused on when I think about what will take crypto to the next level. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely still early days in terms of the technology. There's a lot of talk about 
you know, where we are in terms of institutional capital flowing into the space. And I'm curious to get your take because I'm sure you talk with institutional investors on a daily basis. There's one view that I think is, is around, you know, institutions are coming, but it's, they're not here yet, right? And we're missing, you know, A, B, C. I think we just talked about a few of the reasons why they're not here just yet. There are other people in the space who claim, actually, they're already here. And they're active, and maybe, you know, maybe you don't hear about that in the news, but actually pretty much every, you know, medium to large institutional investor, to some degree, already has exposure to crypto. Where are you kind of in terms of your view of where we are in terms of institutional adoption of this emerging new asset class? Sure. I think we are very early on. Um, so this idea that most institutions are involved in the space or something, I think is, you know, it's kind of everyone patting themselves on the back. It's not really true. So where we are today, <laughs> where we are, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, where we are today is it's growing and there are more and more. So to be specific, for example, large endowments and asset managers really are not in this space in a meaningful way. Sure. Some of them will let you accept, you know, Bitcoin on their website or something like that, but. You know, compared to how they're allocating money to equities or to bonds or to real estate, crypto is just not even on the map. You would have to zoom in with a microscope. Um, there, you know, Stanford takes some donations in Bitcoin, and so does maybe Notre Dame and Michigan and a few others. But that's very different than the idea of one percent of our assets are are in this thing. So in that way, that you know, large asset managers, large endowments, large pension funds have not arrived in the space. That being said. They're educating themselves, they're interested, and they do have indirect exposure. So two of our clients, for example, Paradigm and Morgan Creek, they both have um, you know, endowments or pension funds um, as their backers. And that's true of you know, many of our other clients that are really top quality crypto funds. You know, one of the family offices that uses our platform is the Bailey family, and they run Cambridge Associates that works with many of the very, very large um, kind of asset managers in the world today. So there's certainly an interest. There's indirect exposure via crypto funds. Um, there are people who, you know, the family offices behind many of these financial institutions themselves are making allocations. So all of that is very encouraging that there's this education, that they're interested, that they're indirectly investing through venture firms or crypto funds. And we, you know, shouldn't belittle that there's progress there. But at the same time, when you see a large recession or, you know, threats in the world, it's not like asset managers are really moving into Bitcoin as the store of value or the safety haven. So it's still a hypothesis. So we're still waiting for very large adoption by asset managers, banks, endowments, pension funds, folks like that. But at the same time, I think the hypothesis of Bitcoin as a store of value, of crypto as an emerging asset class is and will come true. Uh, but we're in a very early stage of that. And so I think there's a lot of potential there for folks like to go me to, you know, build out better trade execution, give them all the tools they need, the algos. Um, but at the same time, you know, they have to continue shifting over. I would say the breakout groups um, in terms of, you know, coming into the space that are institutionals have most recently been both market making funds that have been in it for a while and are providing liquidity on the exchanges. But now increasingly quant funds that, you know, with the advent of shorting, which we now offer on Tagomi, for example, they can run strategies that go long short and maybe they don't need to have a view on a certain crypto asset. They're kind of using back-tested models to trade. So I think we're seeing quant funds as one category of institutionals coming in. Uh, that wasn't necessarily true even a year ago. And then another major category is technology companies. 
So, you know, Facebook, for example, is seven times the market cap of Goldman Sachs, and it's involved in cryptocurrencies. So that's super exciting. Uh, Square obviously offers Bitcoin, SoFi. So you're seeing more and more sort of large tech institutions move into the space. And, you know, to be honest, when we started at the end of 2017, we would have thought there'd be more banks or more large asset managers. Well, instead, a different type of institution has emerged in that, you know, these big tech companies have been moving into the space. So, you know, I think it's important to build something that can be useful for many different types of clients. And so at Tagomi, we have a very broad client range. There's a lot of interesting growth in the institutional space. There are a lot of interesting new characters like Facebook and quant funds. Uh, but overall, the traditional large financial institutions, while interested in having working groups and having some indirect exposure, perhaps, you know, are not in a meaningful way interacting with crypto assets yet. Right. That makes sense. And I think it's also like, it's pretty natural, right? I mean, these are not probably early adopters. When you think about kind of the typical early adopter, right? Like someone like Facebook probably fits that mold much better than, you know, a pension fund. So, so, so that makes a lot of sense. So thinking about kind of the use cases that we have seen emerge in the space so far, why do you think things like lending and the um, Bitcoin futures and so forth have really uh, taken off while we haven't, to your point, we haven't seen many other use cases that people are excited about, for instance, you know, STOs, really gain any significant traction yet? Any thoughts there? Yeah, so I think STO is definitely an interesting topic. Um, somewhat, it's a legal and, arb and regulatory question more than a technology question, to be honest. Um, but I also think that to date, some of the challenges on STO market has been the lemon dilemma of, you know, worse real estate, for example, wants to be securitized and put on a token. Um, and the best real estate locations don't seem very interested in that. So I think, you know, the STO question is really less of a technology one, more legal, regulatory, more business one. You know, if really high quality assets like Facebook stock or Apple stock or Manhattan real estate was put into token form, I would imagine people across the globe would be very interested in it. But it's a little bit less of a technology breakthrough. Um, and more of a legal regulatory question. And I think some of its hindrances has been legal regulatory, but some of it has also just been the most attractive assets generally have not been tokenized. Um, in terms of other use cases, I mean, they're certainly growing. So I think there's a very exciting pocket in DeFi, which is early on, but if it proves to continue to scale and there's more innovation, I think it can eat up a lot of the financial industry. And that's super exciting. I think on the payment side, you know, people are building on top of Bitcoin and ambitious projects like Libra are launching and other stable coins like Celo and, and others as well. So I think on the payment side, um, you're also going to see more and more. It's just on the sort of trading infrastructure and speculative side, it's quite easy to replicate some of what's already been built in equities and FX. Now, it's not super easy. You need a really experienced technology team and you know, you need people who have built these sort of systems before and you have to get all the licenses. So obviously sitting here at Tagomi, I know how much hard work that has been over the last two years. But that being said, you don't need a technology breakthrough necessarily. Um, and so I think some of the other use cases do require technology breakthroughs. Those happen slower, but then once they happen, things grow much faster than anyone really anticipates, especially if they're network effects. And so I think we're continuing to see technology innovation, but not necessarily major breakthroughs yet. I think those are coming, and that's certainly very hard. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, sort of replicating 
best in class equities, FX, futures um, is also hard, but certainly a known quantity. And with the right team and resources like Tagomi has, we've been able to do it um, while others might have struggled. Right. These are some great points. How do you get the world out, Mark? How do you expand your customer base? Yeah, good question. I'm open to suggestions. So right now we uh, have 25 people, you know, uh, definitely if you're a quant fund or crypto fund or venture fund or family office, you know, reach out to me. I'm just Mark, M-A-R-C at togomi.com. Um, but yeah, it's been almost all organic. So almost all word of mouth. So we have over 350 plus institutional clients right now. You know, many ended up investing in Togomi. Then they made more referrals. We have a lot of inbound requests. Um, it's really just happy customers. It's, it's still a small ecosystem. So, you know, quant funds talk to other quant funds. Crypto funds talk to other crypto funds. Same with family offices, same with venture firms, um, same with index products on the platform, or now increasingly token projects that want us to do treasury management, like helping lend out their cash and coin or helping them kind of go to market and be listed on exchanges and be on Togomi. Um, and so, you know, it's really just been spreading organically. We actually don't have any sales or business development people at Tagomi yet. Uh, we're planning to change that. But to date, it's been growing organically by just having the best product on market and having very low retention and very high sort of referrals. And, you know, at least for this stage of building the business and the product, that's worked well. But in the future, we certainly will invest more behind marketing and a sales team and all of that good stuff now that, you know, we're two years into product development and one year into being live. Yeah, I mean, if you can go through word of mouth and basically organically, that's the best, right? You don't have to spend any budget on that. And it's a good indication that, you know, your customers really appreciate the product offering. So that sounds like a good problem to have. Cool. So I want to shift gears a bit and talk about Libra. And let me start by, you know, providing the caveat. Previously, I used to work at Facebook. I think it's pretty out there. You recently announced that you're joining the Libra Association. Can you talk about why you decided to join the association and what drew you into partnering with Facebook on this new project? Yeah, so I think what drew us to it were really two pieces. One, how ambitious it is, and two, how early it is. So the ambition is really that you know, billions of people have been affected by things like social networking, which have spread very, very quickly using software, connecting the world. And that's also true, not just for Facebook, but other members like Uber or Spotify, you know, have massive distribution and have really changed a lot of people's lives very quickly. Um, and so that's great. But we haven't necessarily seen that on the financial services side of the world. So you still have billions of people who are unbanked or underbanked. Um, and of course, the, the effect of that is in terms of payments. It's extremely difficult to send money across different countries or even within a country. There's very little infrastructure in places like Africa and India and East Asia, even in places. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've seen that changing in the U.S. and in China, which really pioneered a lot of the mobile banking, uh, really massive platforms and payment platforms. And so we like this ambitious mission of let's have massive distribution and really change that about the financial system. And so that very much resonated with us. You know, we've been building all of this technology infrastructure and have been live and trading for a year, helping clients trade across 10 exchanges and four market makers and using infrastructure to be able to make better and larger trades. In some ways, you know, this is a much more scalable version of that where every individual should have better ways to make a payment or send money. And a lot of those technology rails are actually quite similar. Um, so we're very excited about the mission. It aligns well with ours. And then in terms of how early it is, I think is also important. Like, you know, this project is less than a year old, still figuring out who the members should be, how everyone can contribute, 
um, you know, what exactly it will look like. It certainly will evolve. And I think that's right. I think it's important to have really folks who can contribute in many different ways and to test and iterate. Um, and I think that approach really always works well with product building. And so being able to be early, you know, we've been live for a year. We can obviously share our thoughts. We operate in 30 countries. Obviously, as we mentioned earlier in the call, legal and regulatory is something important to us. We've traveled the world talking to regulators, got licenses here in the U.S. and abroad. Um, and so I think there's a lot to go make and add as well um, as, you know, the project is very early and um, is is really going after something very ambitious. So for us, that was an exciting opportunity to jump on and to push forward. And, you know, one of the categories I've always thought is a very natural fit for crypto certainly is payments. And, you know, I hope that Libra is uh, one of the solutions to payments. Yeah, I mean, the really exciting part about it, I think, is just the scale of distribution, right? I mean, if this does succeed, suddenly you can have billions of people exposed to cryptocurrencies. And I think that's quite unique. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that evolves. Curious how the process works. Can you talk a bit about the association? I mean, do you guys meet every you know, certain period of time and make decisions together? If, if you can share a bit about that. Yeah, so the members definitely know each other. Uh, we meet, you know, we vote on different items. Um, we're a brand new member, so you probably should <laughs> right. have someone who's who's been around the block a little bit more. But yeah, it's definitely a very interactive group. You know, it's still pretty limited. I think it's 22 different organizations. They're all hands on deck conversations. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of knowledge sharing and a lot of those processes are still being built. And obviously the Libra Association itself would be able to tell you much more how they view that evolving in the future than us, the newest member. But we're we're excited to contribute wherever they they want us to and, you know, on whichever kind of group committees or knowledge sharing products of the program. Just one more question on that. Curious if you were involved in the latest decision that was announced recently to kind of shift the product focus a bit towards fiat-backed assets. Yeah, so I think all the specifics of kind of what's next for Libra, any kind of updates to the product, et cetera, are really best given directly from Libra, not an association member that has a view on it. So I would definitely <laughs> defer you to them. Fair enough, fair enough. And um, what's next for Tagomi? Like what's next on your roadmap? Can you share some things you're excited about? Yeah, so we continue to automate the product more and more. I think that the entire lending, borrowing, margin space has a long way to go in terms of bringing new banks into the process and in terms of building out more settlement and clearing functionality. So, you know, we continue to actively work with clients as a prime broker, but there are more and more pieces that are coming together as well that we're definitely excited about. And then, you know, very much on our roadmap and top of mind right now is how to integrate futures onto the platform as well. So futures and options, we have a lot of folks doing the basis trade with us, so looking at kind of the implied price between spot and futures. And so just being able to continue to say, hey, you know, once you have a Tagomi account, you don't need other accounts. You don't need ex individual exchange accounts or custodian accounts or, you know, accounts for futures. Um, that's definitely something we want to be able to say to institutional clients down the road. And so focusing on futures um, and is definitely a, a priority for us. Sounds like there's still a lot for you guys to build in the coming years. One of the things I like to ask guests is about fundraising. I know you guys raised about $28 million so far. Curious, Mark, if you can share some best practices for aspiring entrepreneurs listening to this podcast 
and talk about how you approach fundraising and some learnings you had along the way. Yeah, absolutely. I think one really important piece is to be building a product that people want. And that sounds very obvious, but very smart investors will be able to grill down and ask you, you know, who exactly are the clients you envision? Um, and being able to understand and have empathy for those clients and really, really get the nuances of what they want and need and be able to speak to that, you know, three, four, five levels deep into the questioning is, I think, what differentiates teams. And so, you know, in our case, our first round was led by Peter Thiel's Founders Fund. Uh, they had been actually quite active in the space for a while. They understood trading themselves since they did it. Um, so to be able to sit down with a client and understand their needs um, as well as they do. And in our case, you know, with Greg Tussar as a co-founder, having seen the evolution of equities and FX trading, you know, in many cases, he told some of our early investors who ended up being clients as well of things that they should be asking and they should want. So I think, you know, starting a company in a space where you have really, really intimate knowledge, but you also can really sit in the client's shoes and articulate what is missing is super important for that first round getting started. You know, our second round was led by pa Paradigm. That's Fred Ursum and Matt Huang, who used to lead a lot of the crypto investing at Sequoia. Um, obviously, people like Fred and Matt have been in the ecosystem a really long time. And so, you know, leading the second round was talking more about actually the product and having them use it and try it and think, looking at how quickly we can iterate and showing that you can really execute, that your product's scalable. Um, you know, that was what was important for the, for the second round. Um, and then also to a degree, just showing like the traction and, and people signing up. So I think it really varies. But the first principle is to have a product that you deeply, deeply understand and that you understand the client base and you can have those conversations as it comes through. And then after that, of course, having a product that's really scalable, that's really best in class, that's different and can do things other products can't. And then finally, to show the scalability and the network effect and why as you continue to scale, you only get more and more powerful as a company and as a platform. And so if you do those three things in that order, I think you'll be in pretty good shape. Yeah, these are some really great points. Thanks for sharing that. How important is it, just as a follow-up, how important is it, do you think, to talk to people who are familiar with the ecosystem, to your point? So, you know, approaching more general VC funds and investors versus ones who are more focused on the crypto space. Yeah, so kind of like as a final thought, um, I think you have to have a, or it's beneficial to have a mix of both. So, you know, we have some investors um, in our cap table who are more traditional, like SB Angel and Elod Gill and Joe Lonsdale and folks like that. And then we have folks who are really crypto specific, like obviously Paradigm that led our last round, but also investors like Pantera and Multicoin and others. So for us, I think it's been really helpful to have a mix because part of what we're building is software, it's distribution, it's acquiring users, it's design. And another part of what we're building is very crypto specific, thinking about custody, thinking about, you know, lending and shorting and the workflows that those are associated with in crypto or the sort of trading tools that traders and crypto and larger funds and crypto want. Um, so I think it's very good to have a mix of viewpoints in your investor base. But at the end of the day, um, you have to have a strong view and position and you should be open to changing that. But if you go and just sample investors, you're going to come back with a bunch of ran random results. So I would never really run a company based on what investors or an investor 
really thinks, they're never going to be as close to the ground as you. So you should try to figure out with each investor, you know, what kind of perspective do they bring that's really useful? Maybe some are good at go to market. Maybe some are really good at introductions. Maybe some are good at the UX UI. Um, so try to figure out like what are really the power zones of investors. But you know, in terms of what is this product, how does it need to be? Um, go out and spend your time talking to your clients, not your investors on that piece. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Really enjoyed the discussion and appreciate you sharing your insights. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to chatting again soon. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode of The Blockchain VC and want to help bring more awareness to the space, I'd really appreciate it if you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. This only takes a few seconds and helps get the word out.